Folks, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. As we wrap up another calendar year, uh, music certainly has cumulative results, and uh, musicians who create that music um, also have a, a cumulative effect as it relates to the Jake Feinberg Show because I'm able to bridge, continue to create these bridges of authentic musicians who are bringing light and love to this world. Uh, and uh, that was recently, again, proven to me, uh, being connected to my next guest through, um, you know, a dear spirit, an angel and Serena Gabriel, and then to not only connect with my guest and to just be an, sort of awed by uh, his capacity to create continuously through a multitude of different uh instruments uh to find out he was uh, so beautifully connected to people from the brother and sisterhood that i've chronicled so much people like michael shreve just sort of uh, as i drove back to tucson that day it sort of uh reinstilled in me uh you know the the, the purpose of the path that i'm on uh and uh kind of been high stepping ever since steve roach welcome back to the jake feinberg show Thank you so much, Jake. And uh, it's a noble, beautiful path that you're you're on and that you're bringing all of us on. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I tend to forget I'm bringing a lot of people along with me, you know? T completely so. And it's just uh, the layers of, of inspiration and history that your incredible catalog of interviews holds is uh, when I discovered it, you know, a few years ago before we came even close to being to talking and I heard the John Abercrombie the first interview there that was that was really really said so much about you know you and why I'm so grateful to be speaking with you now feelings mutual I you know I wanted you to talk I mean do you think that there's validity to the idea that music has cumulative results I mean like for me it's like I mean, just using it interpersonally and my own connections, I meet Serena. Then I wind up connecting with Michael Shreve. Then I connect with you. I mean, to me, it's like, you know, just from that elemental point of view, like it all leads up to the fact that we are now creating together, but the whole thing happened 10 years earlier. I wonder if, if that can speak for your music. Well, absolutely. I mean, the the creative life and speaking to the path that I've been on for almost 40 years and the blooming of music and collaborations and the meeting of kindred spirits around the world and performing around the world and performing, you know, a lot right here at home in Tucson. Uh, beautiful always to do that. And the community that's here, the depth and richness of our community in Tucson of course, but um, I mean, I was really thinking about this recently. I saw an interesting documentary on Sinead O'Connor. I didn't know much about her oh. at a deeper level, but I just saw that on Showtime, and it was pretty mind. It was quite mind blowing in terms of what formed her, and I felt certain parallels with what she was sharing early on in that the, her, you know, un, undeniable need to express in her case through voice and words but was through like where music was really almost at a at like a therapeutic level or it was a it was a need that just had to happen and uh and 
and in that case, it is cumulative in that over the years, you know, music has really been my most reliable and unrelenting way of processing and growing as a person and through sound and, and music. But it's really, um, you know, it, it, it serves that purpose in my life. And that's why I feel certain, you know, certain people I still encountered are kind of bewildered on how can I create so much music, um, you know, at the, at the, through the course of my life here. And, um, but it's really, it's, it's, there's really no, um, you know, no, no other way to express that other than that it's just, it's such a deep, you know, need to create every day and to have this reflection and to have this experience where when you're working in the studio or you're playing, you know, just improvising, like I was just doing an hour ago in the live room that you saw here. And, right. and so there's always this, this flow, but there's this, you know, this uh, continuously blooming sense of of self and this sense of questions that get answered without you really answering them asking them but they they seem to come into focus through the process of creativity that could be you know art in any any way that it takes form but hmm. in my case you know the, the music and sound is that you know that endless source of reflection and integration and um you know, it's very cathartic and it just has the full range of truth and beauty that we reach for in, in, in you know, at the core of our, of ourselves. And so, you, you know, know, I, yeah, it's really poetic. Uh, I curious about, I mean, cause you have so much, uh, I mean, you, I mean, a lot of people create a lot of music. You actually have put a lot out of it into the universe in a discography, prolific discography. I mean, a lot of cats will, you know, they'll learn a couple of licks and some runs and some stuff. And then, you know, they'll sort of beg, borrow and steal, find their individual voice. How do you just, does the creative source come through you and it's almost like it was just, how have you not cop copied some riffs from, I mean, you have so much stuff, all of it is original. Uh, did you ever find, how does improvisation come to you? Do you have a bag of licks or is it just, you know, the dragon appears when the dragon appears? Well, that, that would be a really, you know, a great romantic way to express that. I, I suppose that, you know, it, like I hear a lot of musicians and creative people saying they just feel like it comes through you. And that, that is, you know, that's a feeling that, I feel if we're completely in the flow, that's there's a, that sense that it's coming through you, but there's a lot of homework that goes in before it just comes through you. You know, there's a lot of endless hours and years and 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 dedication to study and dedication to very conscious thought into the direction that that you're going at at any particular time and then there's a there's a certain you know there has to be certain self-critical pieces there so you're just not doing the same cool thing over and over again and that 
there is, you know, consistency in my music. Some critics of my music would say, well, that sounds like something you did eight years ago or 10 years ago or 20 or 15. I mean, there is a voice that we speak with when we learn to speak proficiently with this voice as an artist, then, you know, that's a beautiful thing. I mean, that's when you hear the masters, you know, Miles Davis and Coltrane or, sure. Jones or yeah. you know, all these, all these guys have all of these artists that that you're inspired by there's a voice there and so but through that voice then there's you know an awareness to keep infusing it with life and infusing it with the present um, awarenesses of things that you're learning or the things that are coming to you while you're you know deep in the flow and um, you know there was that recent quote I heard I'm not sure where it could have even been through one of your interviews, but it was like, <laughs> but, uh, you know, th thought uh, destroys flow. Right. And um, to a certain degree, you know, there's aspects of that that's that, that's really right on, especially in the flow of the moment. If you're overthinking it, you're getting hung up on what thinking about what you did yesterday or the last time that you played that piece live or something and you're trying to track your footsteps back then you know that's that's just going to um just tie you down but well can um, you talk about a specific example i mean you know where maybe earlier in your career how you ex extended i mean I, I get the feeling you were always thirsting for more but what was like the biggest challenge musically that you came up with? I remember talking to Ron Tut, the great drummer for Elvis, and uh, Jerry Garcia, among other people, <clears throat> Neil Diamond. <laughs> and he said when reggae came along and that downbeat was on the one and three instead of the two and four, it was very humbling. He really had to shed. And I realize we're talking about different genres of music and stuff, but was there something that or early in your career that where it, you, it dawned on you that you had to push yourself out of your comfort zone in order to increase vocabulary and not just rely on some cool showy thing. Right. That, that um, I would say in the early stages, in the very first like four years, you know, where I was really drawn to the, what's called the Berlin school or the European electronic music that was born from, from Tangerine Dream and Klaus Schultz and what was all emerging out of that that world where they they were you know moving away from their influence of Western music and just developing their own sound based on technology and based on their place on the planet and in the world. So I, you know it was as we talked earlier, I believe in the first interview, I talked about the influence of that music and from that part of the world and how you know, un un unbelievably mysterious it was while these guys were not so much older than myself, but just, you know, in a whole other realm of culture and everything that that's shaped them from, you know, post-World War II, being right there in Germany, all of those political pieces that were happening, all of that boils down into a kind of music that then inspired me tremendously, which was, you know, using the sequencer, which creates the repetitive trance-like patterns that you would associate with synthesizer, you know, the core of some of the, of one aspect of early electronic music. Absolutely. So that sound, when I first discovered it and just, and, and, got, and, you know, 
was able to get my hands on on the instruments and and then just start learning those techniques and starting to make those techniques my own and then you know I soon realized through whatever uh, grace of consciousness that I was you know tapping into was that this is really something I love and I'm inspired by and it's physically addicting really that quality of music but it was like this is this I need to find where I'm at in the picture here as uh, a young guy growing up in Southern California and having a confluence of influences that would help shape you know a form of expression that was completely mine authentic to to me when and to the pieces that um of 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 life beyond music that were so much informing me at that time so uh as an emerging young person who was really uh again not really fitting into an academic world and not fitting into uh traditional music of the time you know and had zero interest in being in any kind of rock band or learning instruments that would uh, gain entry into that world let me ask you something you talked about uh the use of synthesizers by tangerine dream klaus schultz etc that it was a movement away from the west would you say that it was uh like music from the cosmos was it really world part of this world yeah I, th I think in knowing the interviews and the history with like those those bands in particular i mean there was certain certainly the core of a lot of that was extreme um psychedelic use at right. that time right like so many of the arts that we art forms and innovations were uh, fueled by that kind of, you know, expansive, you know, expanding consciousness. And so at that time, I mean, you can only imagine being a, a young person whose parents just lived through World War II in Germany. And, you know, there's some amazing documentaries on that aspect of what helped shape that music. But then there was the influence of of Western music, but then that really wasn't, as I'm speaking about my experience, that wasn't something I feel that um, in or that, that that was expressed from in, from a German perspective is they wanted to create their own form of music that had that visceral energy to it. There was a rock, there's there, the piece that was drawing me in towards the, the European, let's call it again, the German school was that there was still a, a rock element. There was you know, drums, and there were sometimes guitars, and then there was eventually a really driving pulse in there. And so, you know, a great, I'd say a certain amount of that was definitely inspired by Pink Floyd. I mean, you'll hear Klaus and those guys talking about how Pink Floyd came in and really turned the lights on for them. Who, who was their synthetic doctor, musician in that band? Uh, in, in what, Pink Floyd? In Floyd, yeah. Well, as a unit, I mean, Roger Waters, uh, you know, they had the the the, the uh, VCS3, which was a little suitcase uh, EMS synthesizer made in, in, in the UK that was wow. like the, the original suitcase that Brian Eno used. And I actually had one of those I was able to borrow, <laughs> from, you know, you know, I had this thing and it was 
a friend of mine in San Diego's parents owned a, a um, an AMC car lot. You know, those, those incredible, if you remember those, the the Rambler and all those cars, he, that his parents had money, so he had money. <laughs> and so he was able to buy these sophisticated, really rare European synths, for example. So I got my hands on that thing early on, but that when you see the making of Dark Side of the Moon, that particular synth with the little sequencer hooked up to it, that creates the, the patterns that you hear on, you know, on Dark Side. So that the influence of, of again, expanding consciousness through, you know, early LSD and all that good stuff, um, you know, all of that was helping to to take down the boundaries and to take people's imaginations and just push down on the plunger, you know, and just blow everything up, mixed up with poly with, uh, you know, with the um, the socio political move, yeah, yeah, totally. the whole political yeah, yeah. The whole climate of that whole incredible time that is, you know, growing up in California, you had no inkling of nothing we were living in in paradise you know in relationship to all of that so but we are getting this you know constant influx from europe of all of this music that's being influenced by you know all sorts of things but especially the expanding like it did of consciousness in the bay area and the bands that grew from that world and, uh, and you, you would say that you would say that that because europe is can be very diverse there's a trance element, I mean, trance, that part of your whole, um, it's all trance in some ways. I just wonder the, the African element, uh, if that is prevalent, if, if, if you, you know, the experiences you've had with the motherland, if at all, or is that a place that you would even desire to, considering that's where mankind is from? You mean uh, Africa? Yeah, that, that that aspect of that influence of um well and also I want you to break down this idea of you know you're talking to somewhat this is not really in my bag, but you know, ultimately you differentiated from like you said, I guess it would be called kraut rock or industrial rock, where you had like guitars, drums, you still had some of that German rub, but then you took the synthesizers just sort of into a whole new level. But I mean, what is kraut rock, you know? Well, that was a term that was coined, I think, in the in the UK, looking at, you know, the I don't know if you'd call it derogatory, but you know, sauerkraut and the food of, of Germany. And they it was some like crowd rock. <laughs> maybe it was John John Peel or somebody just, yeah. you know, there's like they have some tongue-in-cheek version of a of but then you know, you had Amandul and Can and um Sure. You know, there's just endless German you know bands that 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 blew up at that time and um you know record labels were f supporting all of that german labels and then virgin records you know came through with that and then so i mean it was uh, absolutely a revolution of you know music that was being propelled through the you know this piece we spoke to about culture and and then the, the mind expanding piece and then the, the restless like wanting to define a new identity through sound and music culturally for, for yourself yeah you use the word mysterious you use that word as far as like the it was there was it was mood music too it was very moody and and uh yeah, as a, for yeah. me and, and, and again there was a sense of the origin of what where's this what's generating where did this right. music 
um, come from? Because if you go back to the mid 70s and then you compare that to what was being served up on radio in America, it's like it's it's not from another like it's not from outer space or from some cosmic faraway place. It's like it's a parallel world, but it's like it's it was so um, rich and so full of of creativity and innovation and um, you know a depth of of many cultures that were already you know coming together at the, I would I mean I would sense at that time so the mystery was really this mysterious piece that you know some Klaus Schulze I mean this name sounds like some guy that's been around forever you know <laughs> you know it's like he's from another century or something yeah or it's like Richard Wagner's you know yeah right you know stepbrother yeah. or something yeah, yeah. Totally. And so, um, you know, all of that stuff, you know, it was part of the formative years, but at a certain point, I mean, I almost can feel like the day that that aha moment came to me with after a, a certain amount of maybe two or three years of having the, the the instruments and some of the same instruments that Klaus had and and then feeling like, you know, I mean, I'm here and, and I and I live for this experience of the of being in in the desert and the, and the visceral influences of that that was my paradigm shifter i didn't have to you know i wasn't living through post world war 2 i was you know my dad and families around me had all had, had some some something to do with you know world war 2 serving in in the service or something but it was all very very much removed from the safety and and uh you know, the kind of perfect, beautiful lifestyle of SoCal, Southern California. So, but I was aware of that juxtaposition, but what really became very, very, um, you know, like a calling was, uh, you know, I'm tapped into, to, into this expansive feeling here. And I have these instruments that are, it's like having raw paints and you can choose to paint any kind of image with that. And so dang, dang. for me, it was really, I, I, I I'm on this, this this calling to express you know that expansiveness that we spoke on the first round of, of our interview and that feeling was like connection to my place you know on the planet and my place um from you know an artistic um spirit spiritual i guess you'd say connected place um you know the essence of all of that was really like this is really a you know, a calling to express that. And that's when, um, you know, my first album now and then Traveler were, were still expressing aspects of my European influences, but the piece I was already breaking away from was doing short, shorter pieces. I was making these statements that were, you know, seven, eight minutes long, or sometimes maybe shorter, where the pieces that were coming from Europe at that time from Germany, the German school, which is what I like to refer to it as, is um you know they were long flowing um spaces that you know would come from that kind of pushing the boundaries and being in a in a in a highly you know expanded state and so for me the idea of doing and expressing these concise pieces that would have you know a beginning and a middle and an end uh, perhaps, or it would just be a space and a place that would drop you into an experience 
and then then you would leave that and then you'd go to the next place that's why my album called traveler was really speaking to that quality of moving through these different worlds but moving through them more um you know and, and more in a in a uh, succinct um experience rather than you know taking each piece and having it be 30 or 40 minutes long right, right which would come later and which is coming now i mean i'm really just uh you know we were pre prepping for this interview and i just have a new double album that been working on ferociously and just really like 45 minutes ago just finished the uh second disc which is you know over one single piece that's 60 minutes long wow with different movements in it and all of that so um, but you, you know, yeah. for a certain period there, the, the whole taking and putting, you know, that those inspirations into my world and then moving towards creating shorter pieces that would weave together to create a whole was really, you know, a big piece that was really con very conscious to me. While at the same time, though, I have to say it, I would be creating these long form immersive spaces that would conjure up this feeling of being drifting, you know, in the desert realms or in, uh, you know, some kind of space where you're only embraced with what happens when you're, you know, out in, in a natural environment with the sounds that are occurring there, the soundscape of nature, you might think of. But so that I was taking cues from that. But again, the experience of the music itself was really also tapped into, uh, I was already moving towards uh, meditation and yoga and that sort of thing you know it was it didn't have anything necessarily to say well that's a, another product of southern california but it was certainly a product of of the late 60s and and just everything that was emerging and blooming on the planet i mean in, in europe or in you know ohio or parts of ohio i, I would say i guess but you know <laughs> uh, san, san diego southern california sure. bay area all of that you know, sort of thing was just, it was in, it was in the atmosphere and it was, you know, it was just part of the, it was just a beautiful melding reality of all of these new um, pieces of information that when you're, your, your consciousness and your sense of discovery is so voracious and, and you start taking all those things in and making and interweaving those into your own experience, then, then this is, you know, you're talking to, you know, someone that you has created, this is what you get, you know, this kind of thing. Um, the, uh, do you believe that the techniques that you kind of, when you first picked up some of that, those early models, synthesizer, um, uh, but you were, you were figuring out techniques you get your chops together. Yeah. The certain Steve Roach uh, techniques, you know, that not necessarily patented, but they're yours. Have, have they lent themselves to you now being able to create a 60 minute piece of, you know, creation? I mean, have those techniques lent themselves to uh, the ability to elongate and have like, you know, a 60 minute piece. Right. So, yeah, I mean, what from the, you know, the late seventies, which when I, you know, had, was able to get my hands on the first early ARP and Moog synthesizers, 
And out of that, you know, the experiments come and the worlds that you start to, the, the way it is, I'm sure now for young people getting any kind of, you know, analog gear that's now completely sure. in full in full bloom. Sure. So, I mean, you start developing, you know, like we spoke of, of a voice, of a, of a, you know, a quality that is expressing something from deep within. And it's something that, that you can continue to evolve and develop and and that's if you're playing you know saxophone trumpet guitarist harp synthesizer it you know Zawinol had a totally unique voice sure he played, he played the same instruments that i play and and his whole thing was he would because the arp 2600 you could invert the voltage on the keyboard and he would have two of those ARP 2600s, and he would play and invert the keyboard so that it was going backwards. When you were playing up, the notes were actually going down. So that is I mean, ridiculous. Just, you know, and it's so that so was during cool. like the weather report kind of era. Yeah, yeah, and and the, you know, and he would. I mean, imagine you're playing, you're taking your hands and playing them to the center, and. And, and they and they, and he had to keep one of you know the keyboards were inverted so that basically just that I mean you're instead of as you're playing up the keyboard the notes are going down in pitch, and uh, so it's just you know it's an, a good example of how you can use the instruments to invent techniques and um, forms of expression that are unique to each each and every one of us and so for me the the big piece here that that completely. Um, is alive like it's, you know, more than ever, just as as much as any other time is the piece I just spoke to you about called The Knowing Place, disc two of my new album that's coming in, yeah. in March called The Rest of Time. And um, the breathing aspect of my harmonic movement in with the, the voice, the chords that I, um, invent and create are just unique to the way I hear. And then the way those chords are are then articulated, played, and the quality of space, of li literal space between the notes is really, you know, part of my, it's a big piece that, that I, I first discovered, had not heard it anywhere, but that came from the the epiphanies we've been speaking to about the environmental influence of of space and environment and desert and silence that lives lives in a real place and then having that sense of of what comes between sounds then there's this silent space and it's so much energy there there's so much that pulls you in and so that's when i first developed that sense of the the, the breathing aspect in electronic music which you have you're not playing an instrument like a sax or a wind instrument of any kind a flute you you're having to be aware that if you're wanting to have that kind of expression for me it became uh well i'll create that sense of playing an instrument a breath in uh, uh activated instrument but i'll be playing it with my hands and i'll be breathing while i'm playing the instrument and putting the breath into the in, into the way i'm playing that instrument meaning the synthesizer and playing you know chord progressions and then having a large uh, larger span of space between the chords and then oh. I would, I would oh. start to feel more and more of this 
this feeling that occurs when you have that space. It's the same place you get in, you know, in doing breath, you know, meditation and using, you know, breath as a way to get really um, into the stillness of the moment. And then you start expanding that space between the breath. So it's a big piece of that that just is alive in my music all the way to, I mean, it's there. It's one of the, you know, one of the major um, pieces in my toolbox of all the things that I've learned and that I continue to put together. And so these days, that quality of breathing, uh, the breathing chords, which are on this piece that I, I just finished here about an hour ago, there's um, also the, over the years, there's this harmonic expansion, you know, that happens, this development of adding and and creating more uh, colors and creating more dissonance and more consonants and more spaces in between those two um, places. And that's what I love is creating these um, harmonic soundscapes that have this quality that, that that's impossible to, there's no real words for it. There's not a language for it. There's a, and that's what, what I feel so drawn to when I'm creating the the, the atmospheric soundscape pieces is are these landscapes that that uh, you know that word liminal is a very popular word now, but it's that that place that's kind of in between the worlds and you can't really describe it and you just know when you're there and there's something slightly. Um, How do you spell that word? Liminal, L-I-M-I-N-A-L, I think. Wow, I'm not hip to that. I love that. No, the liminal, like um, my album, Be Curious really yeah. is just but if you look that word up it's one of the most more popular words in searches right now wow and i'm seeing more music with you know names of uh using liminal as a title and so there's something that that word also speaks to in in this kind of suspended state of <laughs> of uh time and life that we're in right now there's a, there's something you know, it's like when you go, I think the one sort of simple description of it is when you're in a place and it's a place that's used or it's experienced in a certain way, but it's you're in it and it's not being utilized in that way. Like you go into a, a, a expansive stadium and there's not a single person in there. Right. And so you're getting that feeling of being somewhere or and you get that from maybe, you know, I get it from. When I went to Australia and I was in these sacred sites and and with, you know, Aboriginal rock art that very few people had seen, and you're standing there and you're seeing the stones on the ground where the pestles where they were grinding up the, the ochre rocks to paint on the walls, and it's just sitting there, and no one's touched it in you know thousands and thousands of years, and you're standing there and you're having a relationship with it, and so you know there's that aspect of why. I think where a lot of us are drawn to what you would call a sacred space or a, a place where life was once flourishing and it's no longer there now, mm. or, you know, in our culture now, you, you just, you have these states um, that we're experiencing as, you know, individually and culturally because of how, what a strange world we're living in right now. So there's kind of this, you know, there's a liminal aspect, I think, all around us, you know. I mean, isn't isn't there something to be said also? You just it just dawned on me because you're waxing poetic. It's like 
here you have, you know, you're going to these indigenous Aboriginal sites and taking in and feeling the energy of life in its old in its former context hundreds of years ago. And the biggest issue today, and obviously your music is sort of uh, an expression, um, not a not against it, but uh, in, in contrast, it's just, I mean, we plant a seed, we don't even let give it a, a week to grow, we, we, we plant another seed, then we plant another seed, then we plant another seed. There's no time for the roots to really develop. So we live in this very transient time, yet the cosmos is filled with the essence of life and pulse from millions of, you know, years yeah. ago. So, right. I mean, and we're like, and we're like, when I was coming up as a young, wet behind the ears, I mean, we had a landline telephone. I, we weren't, there was, I mean, computers were for word processing. And now we're at a point now where, you know, it's just, it's so transient and fleeting in contrast with what we know and what you've witnessed and can feel. So I just feel like that's, you talk about this strange time. It's like this, it, it's, it's pretty pronounced in terms of the, uh, the polar extremes, you know? Well, yeah, and it's, it's so, you know, you talk about immersive. I mean, I love immersive experiences, but the immer the immersive nature of our relationship to time right now because of the immediacy at, at a given second you mm. hold it in your hand you have a computer that's way more powerful than what put man on the moon and and you're and and you're dialing up tiktok you know looking at videos clips that are hitting millions and millions of people you know and so right. but it's not like you know i mean that's just creativity that's like in the, the evolution of our intelligence and the de-evolution on what might be viewed as from some people but um i just, just feel like the, the idea of like you can go back i mean this is something we haven't really touched on but <laughs> it's just the idea that like you know there was something at one point called artist development Totally. It would take a few, like the, the companies would understand that it would take a couple of albums before they might get a radio friendly hit, but they stayed with there. It wasn't so one and done moving. On. There's no time for any real roots. Oh, yeah. if, if you can, like, that's really why I start in some ways. It's like, I wanted there to be this sense of lineage that was so deep that it would just be an art, a, a, a treasure trove of just sort of, of, of roots, of roots at the core, you know? And I feel like your music, like, I mean, a lot of that visual st stuff that I saw at the burger, it just, it felt like atmospheric roots, you know, sometimes it just, it, it's, it's deep, it's elongated, it can get gnarly, it can open up, but it's all right. there and it's tough and it's not just going to, you know, poof in the wind. You get people. The other, my point is that it took a while. And also, you wouldn't just get crowned to be uh, a band leader if you had no experience as an accompanist. So you just had a bunch of sharp, a lot of people that were put in positions before they really had a chance to actually go through the process. And like you said, we're always in a rush now. Everything yeah. needs to happen. Yes, uh, you know, the, ten minutes ago. 
And that's not how anything quality actually happens. Right, and the, the living with, with the whole process with, you know, right. I mean, it, for me, the Holy Grail was eventually I would reach a point to where my music was worthy of putting out on vinyl. Right. And when, and that took about five years and it was, I mean, it was really like, that was, you know, that was a incredible initiation at that point because of being, a, you know, having grown up in record stores and just the reverency you would have for relief for albums and, and the, the connection you would have to the music and listening, the, the listening parties you'd have, you know, you'd go get the album, you go to your friends, you know, immediately, you know, maybe in your, I don't know. I mean, but there were concept albums and there was a lot of communal listening to music. People didn't have earbuds in, you know? Right. Yeah. No, it was, it was like a, you know, it was a ceremony that you would have. And then for me, it was like, no, no speaking. I mean, you put the album on. and <laughs> I did, yeah, man. Deep listening, you know? Yeah. You get scowled at, you know, and it was, <laughs> <I didn't> even... <clears throat> but no one, we, everybody understood that anyway. But right. I mean, I think that's the beauty of vinyl coming back around is that, you know, if we have kids, those who have kids and then they want to, or, or whoever missed out or they want to get that experience back, that vinyl brings back the ceremony of listening, you know. Of, Absolutely. I can see it. I can see it with my daughters. You know, you can put on Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, you play the whole thing all the way through one side, you know. Yeah. And, you know, and so, but I just, going back to this idea of, approaching something in a zen i don't know what the right word is but 60 minutes uh i, I forget the name of the piece now but uh, you know, the one you just created i mean that is patience personified and you know i also think that there's probably stuff that you uh well i mean Talk a little bit about how much, uh, what kind of new vocabulary you feel like you're incorporating into your music now. Right. Well, the, you know, the constant and steady evolution of of the technology that I'm, you know, I'm always drawn to. That that's a a constant, beautiful thing that you can experiment and audition and and bring new instruments into the fold which then creates inspiration for you know whole new directions mm -hmm. in music so i mean it's it's uh you know the the, the what we have now is just mind-blowing i mean the number of choices that we have the instruments that are being produced and created and, and released you know constantly um you know it's beyond overwhelming so you have to have a certain uh for you know a sense of of discipline in terms of what what you know you're drawn to as an instrument i mean the guitar we we know that there's still some of the most sought after guitars you're going to find that were made before 1960 mm. and you Absolutely. know and in this case i mean i have a variety of vintage synthesizers here that were you know from the dawn of the early days and they're still functional and i you know i keep them 
um, alive and well and they appear in my music, but then I'm also bringing in, you know, new instruments um, and auditioning. And it often takes, you know, three to six months before the audition is over to see if it's going to stay or not. But in terms of, uh, you know, the evolution of my music and, you know, I've always for, for years, let's just say not always the first, probably well up through dream time, that would be the first eight years. It was hundred percent synthesizers. And then once I started opening up to acoustic instruments and that's when uh, in the mid eighties, the, the world music was really, you know, exploding. And um, I was already being drawn of course to the, you know, didgeridoo and um, Indian music and that sort of thing. And, and at that time, but eventually I would start introducing more and more acoustic instruments in there. And then that led me to that whole period where I worked with Jorge Reyes, uh, the late Mexican, uh, you know, fantastic musician from Mexico that, right, right. that we, that blended, you know, a bunch of the electronics along with all of his pre-Hispanic instruments. And so that whole period of my music was, you know, I really brought that whole sound through when it was just right at the dawn of, of occurring. So what was... Um, Can you talk about going to Australia? That was something I, I wanted to mention in the first interview, because did you feel like it was important to learn? Did you did you feel like you wanted to actually get your hand, your <clears throat> literally your, your arms around the ditch yourself? Or did you go there with the intention to record your music with an instrument that you had not been hip to before? Well, I was, you know, that piece when I was started having this calling for Australia. Yeah. As I was, we talked about, and I was working on the music. And then uh, I saw that movie, the, the early Peter Weir film, The Last Wave. And that's where I first heard the didgeridoo was in that movie. Wow. And- um, What year did that movie come out? That was, uh, you know, I can't answer that question, but I heard I probably been 85. I probably saw that movie, you know, right. that movie. so. Um, so I was very aware of the instrument and, of course, drawn to it. But again, it was another one of these alluring, mysterious <laughs> things, you know, and, I, and and so before, you know, by by the time I went to Australia on my first trip and I'm in uh, Cairns, in the Cape York area and the in the Queen, Queensland area in Cape York area then uh, I met up with David Hudson who mm. is uh, an aboriginal uh, master dig, didgeridoo player and I met him at a one of his performances of his aboriginal dance group so I instantly just went right up to him and introduced myself and told him what I was there doing and and uh, next thing you know I'm recording him at his house and, and on a Sony Walkman cassette player, a pro Walkman. And so that, and then that was the beginning of my connection to Didge directly with him. And he, he gave me a Didge and gave me a few little tips on it, but I, you know, it was nothing near like I'm able to play this thing. And then eventually he came actually to the U S and he came to Tucson. And this is right when the whole early, Didge explosion in in Tucson was happening, and uh, we actually I, I got to stop you right there because this is so classic, the early Didge explosion. So basically, you're talking like late eighties, yes, mean, and, and 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 
why was there this explosion? I mean, it was obviously it was in the, the soundtrack you heard, but I mean, for me, this is classic. You're telling me that's when it hit. That's when it, it, it got into the to the old Pueblo. Right. It got into the old, it got into Tucson. And I know that story. Like I was there. at, at the You were there. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> you right there. Yeah, I mean, I was with Alan Shockley and, and, the, oh, the, and then the um, Mark Woody. Okay. So let's say the didgeridoo, you know, of course was starting to find its way into um, Western culture uh, through some music and some, there was some bands at the time. Um, Outback, this band with uh, from Australia that had this kind of, you know, it was more, um, it was fun stuff and it was driving and rhythmic. I think it had a guitar percussionist and then Charlie McMahon was a ditch player and he had, he was missing a hand so he would play the ditch holding the ditch with a hook. Oh my God. Wait, would, you, would you say this was uh, like sort of Australian folk music or how what would the, the yeah it was sort of uh, it absolutely had like almost like a Celtic vibe to it right it right like a like a early trance you know groove thing going on but all acoustic you know no electronic stuff wow. that I could remember wow. so I mean these things were starting to seep into America but when I went to Australia and came back and then and then, you know, I had the recordings of David that I used on Dreamtime. And then he came, he was over here, like I would say, pretty quickly, like in 89. So Celestial Harmonies, who was based in Tucson, the recorded the record label, was releasing a lot of world music at that time from all over the world. So I had introduced them to David's music. And the owner at that time said, who is going to want to hear a 60-minute CD of Didgeridoo? <laughs> And I said, you will be surprised. Yes. And so we proceeded to record that first album ever on CD. I mean, I'm really not blowing my horn there, but there was no no didgeridoo music on CD. Yes, no, I knew there was something seminal. So this is explain this is seminal stuff right here. Right. And so David was in happened to be in Tucson and he was tr doing some sort of promotion traveling over here for his dance group or something. And then so in my little house up Bear Canyon on the east side, I, you know, I had an eight-track recorder. And so we set up and we recorded um, Walunda. You can find it on Amazon, wherever. Wow. And um, it's just, it's uh, 10 solos for Didgeridoo. And so we recorded that album in an afternoon. And then, uh, you know, Celestial ended up releasing the album. And, and at the same time, at that time in Tucson, there was a, record store called um here's music on campbell and it was like a cd store and that's when cds were like at the pinnacle of the whole I, I, you know so we did an in-store with david there and then um across the street was a guy just happened to be in the area there don uh campbell i think his name is and um or Don Walter, and um, he was making, at that time, this whole piece, it's simultaneously, this kind of zeitgeist was happening with this didgeridoo explosion, and the idea that you could make didgeridoos from agave stalks. Wow. And, and so wow. those are not familiar with the agave cactus, you know, or it's basically a, 
you see the cactus that sprouts out. It looks like a, a, a massive artichoke. And then out of the center of that comes a, a, a stalk that could be, you know, 15 feet tall. This stalk that comes out of the center of that, of, uh, of the agave cactus. So when the, when the, the whole lifespan goes through its, its timeline and then the, it falls over and then somehow, uh, and and I'm from my memory, it was a guy from from New Mexico named Mark Woody that brought that idea through, and then he shared it with Alan Shockley, who's now passed away, but he was the legendary ditch player and purveyor of all things agave stock didgeridoos and <laughs> And so he was the one that was like, "Wow, we can make him out of that." Yeah, and so, but yeah, he got I think Wood, Mark Woody from Santa Fe, and they teamed up, and so they started harvesting stalks all over southern arizona and so when oh. the stock dry when the when the agave stock dries out then you trim it at both ends and then it dries out for maybe a year and then you take an extendable drill bit that's going to maybe go four feet down on each side and you and you bore out the soft core like balsa wood out of the shell of this long stalk and then then you continue to clean it up and dress it up and trim it and and then you coat it with this it's uh an epoxy but it's an environmentally it seals non-toxic and so these guys discovered all that and then you put in a, a you know a beeswax mouthpiece on it and then you have an amazing sounding didgeridoo that's compared to the australian didgeridoo it's it, it's it sounds like it's amplified because of the thin wall thinner walls of the Gavi stock. So oh, the didgeridoo is a with the never ever land on me right now. That's unbelievable. So then that's what and at that point, then you know, David Hudson, Australian Aboriginal Didge Master, was here. We recorded his album that same week. We went over, did an in-store at the music store. Um, we met, you know, the local ditch maker, um, and Don, and then went over to his place and David ended up buying five of his agave stock digits and took them back to Australia in, in 89. And that's, you know, that, that was like a whole, you know, just there it is, you know, it's like, you can see how things spread, you know, around the world quickly. So did you, did, can you talk about, were you playing on the recording synthesizers or the, the, the 12, the 12, yeah, the, the Walunda album, I mean, at that point, I had been to Australia a couple of times and I was at Larrikin Records in Sydney, which was their sort of folkways label that, you know, we would see here. And they had they had a didgeridoo album. Absolutely. And it was a it was a master didge player on a, and it was a 45 record. And that was it. Wow. Wow. In 86, there was nothing on CD. And that's why I, when I came back and proposed that to celestial i said we you know we need it we need this on cd and so david proceeded to record that and so it was solo we did a few more albums together uh serpents uh rainbow serpent and uh i forget the names of the other albums actually but uh their collaborations but the first album was 100 percent solo didgeridoo and then i was also you know treating it in uh in a reverb space so you had the sense you were in an acoustic environment like you were in a small cave or something what uh i'm looking here 
Ro Steve Roach, David Hudson, <clears throat> Deep Didgeridoo, 1994. There's an interview with Kimberly Haas. But you had done stuff. Had there been stuff done before this one? What was that date? 94. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, so uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, his first album came out in, I think, 89. Um, and so that was in 94, you said? Yeah. Deep Didgeridoo. Uh, I'm just looking here. Uh, let's see. What's the name of the uh, Australia Sound of the Earth? Yeah, that was in 89. That's when I went back to Australia and I went around the country recording uh, either didgeridoo-inspired artists, or which included Sarah Hopkins, who was a very well-known musician in Queensland area. And her father was a, wow. a conductor in, from New Zealand, but she played cello and she played cello in a style that was called circular bowing. And she adopted that from playing with a lot of ditch players in Darwin. She lived in Darwin at the top end of Australia. And so, you know, she would play cello in a way that sounded like a ditch, the way she would bow it, you know. And so that's what that album about was about. But that, that was before the first album of Walunda with David. How do you spell Walenda, by the way? Yep, W-O-O-L-U-N-D-A. Okay, got it. I mean, so after that uh, recording, I mean, did did you start to see a lot more people now recording didgeridoo after that? Well, it, yeah, it just, you know, there were so many, um, so many, that band also, I got to correct myself, Gondwana Land, that was the band with Charlie and mcmahon and who had the hook oh uh, man yeah that dude man. yeah I'm, i need to be correct on that that because there's i'm rattling the memory cage here but <laughs> you know outback was a another a band born of uh western guys from america i think but uh gondwana land was you know charlie mcmahon and he, he was married to an aboriginal woman and i mean he was the real deal absolutely and he also invented what I think was the inventor of what was called the ditch bone, which is like a trombone, but it's a didgeridoo that's that's like made of uh, probably PVC pipe, and you can play it and then slide it as you're playing it. Oh, are you? It has like different different tones when you slide it. Yeah, it'd be just like a, a trombone where you're gonna it's gonna change the pitch as you're playing it. Sure. You could be playing in one key and then you could you know. You could or you could set it up in a way to where you would then slide it down to the other key, or you could play it sliding it down in a glissando to the next pitch. So, um, but at that point, then it just it just absolutely blew up. I mean, didgeridoo was like the it instrument for several years there. You couldn't go anywhere, you know, in Tucson on the street fair, anywhere, and not hear didge, and not it was just like and, and then. What added to that was these big ditch gatherings that would bring people in from all over, like three or four hundred people, right into downtown Tucson at some of the some of the art dance studios. And um, do you know the music of Stephen Kent? Not off, not off the top of my head. Yeah. So he um, 
he was in a band that really also was a Western group of guys called Lights in a Fat City. And they really, he really, he was a British guy and we ended up doing an album together, Halcyon Days, but he's a master, master ditch player. And um, so he would be part of these gatherings, of course, myself, and there would be, and Alan Shockley would organize these, but there would be, I mean, it was a, just a absolute, you know, didgeridoo summit meeting, you know, summit gathering with people jamming and then bands playing, but all, you know, completely, I mean, if you didn't know any better, you would like, this is like a, a the cult of the didgeridoo people or something. You know? I mean, it's, it's, a well, but it, it it's not surprising considering it, 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 it sort of, the germ was, was here and then everyone wanted to come to, to the place where, I mean, it, it was the, the biggest hotbed in the United States by far. It was for 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 didgeridoo, and I I mean I I mean I I happened to be at um you know here at the right place at the right time also promoting the instrument in my way in the early nineties the late eighties and then it just so happened that that Alan Shockley was here and then they started you know this whole agave didgeridoo thing and then and then. You know, the street fairs would always on Fourth Avenue in Tucson would have like Rob Thomas from Inlakesh. He was another famous ditch player sure. of the instruments. And then and then, of course, um, you know, Serena, she discovered the instrument here in Tucson and she came, you know, she was going to the U of A uh, back back then. And, and then the didgeridoo early on became you know, an infatuation with her as it did for us all. So she's, you know, she's been, um, you know, just completely immersed in didgeridoo since the beginning here. And and that was another piece that, you know, brought us together was uh, when, the, you know, we knew, knew of each other in the community, but then just that piece, you know, was another obvious connection to the music that we would then start to make. And, and so, um, but, you know, that reminds me when you were we were speaking to, you know, the music and how that's continued to evolve for me beyond synthesizers. And I was bringing in the work with Jorge and eventually Byron Metcalf, who's a, you know, frame drum and percussion and all that. And then, um, you know, just expanding the blending of the acoustic with the electric world, the synthetic world. And then, um, you know, crossfade into the work I'm doing with Serena over the last few years and her, you know, mastery of and just beautiful um, language that she speaks through her instruments was just, you know, another natural progression in exploring and blending, you know, the power of acoustic instruments in this context of this music that, you know, we're speaking of. You know, can you just talk about uh, how you, what you're uh, grateful for? Um, you know, gratitude is the attitude. And, and I try to remind myself, um, you know, for me, when it rains, it pours in terms of getting inspiration or doing interviews. It, and then there's these periods where there's more ebbing, more ebbs and, and, and not so much flowing. Right. But through it all, I try to stay grateful, and I just wanted you to talk to the audience as we head into a, a new a new calendar year. 
uh, you know, what, where, how, well, how you find gratitude, what, what you find gratitude in, in your life? Yeah, that's such a beautiful point here. That's beautiful question and it demands a, you know, it demands like it demands most, another part to this interview session so you can think about it for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's the you know the gratitude and grace of the abundance that we have in our lives on so many levels is just can never, you know, it's easy obviously all of us we take things for granted at times and maybe more times than often more mm -hmm. times than not but uh i mean it's just the, the gifts that we have just you know from a materialistic point of view is just completely off the chart i mean it's just it's too much really right so, yeah you know through that you have to keep reeling it back in and keep connected to what is really important and what is really you know what's going to sustain your gratitude and your bliss and you know the, the endless source of choices and options and gear and instruments and stuff to watch and things to track down on your phone and all of that sort of thing and it's you know it's to me it's not about being of any particular age or shaking your cane at the sky about whatever you know is now here and was it wasn't this way years ago because there's always levels of new information and new options and new things to take your attention attention away from the grace and gratitude that you can wake up to every day and just start from a clean slate of that i have to tell myself every day that's such a discipline to stay connected with the pure essence of the clean slate you know the oh man i love it man no i mean it's the kabula rasa man i mean it's i mean know. i just it's funny because i I'm, I'm i'm i just interviewed the great drummer again uh jim keltner for uh we're trying to they're trying to sell uh, a picture of the concert for bangladesh that george yeah. harrison put on uh Incredible, money, raise money for a food kitchen not a food kitchen a big operation to feed the homeless called food forward and, you know, it just, I just feel like, you know, Felder was talking a lot about, you know, meeting John Lennon, recording, meeting George Harrison. And, you know, he just said that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do this justice, but for all the sort of most consequential issues in life, you know, love really is the answer. And, I, and to me, that has to do with just being vulnerable um, to being, you know, putting yourself in vulnerable positions and hoping that other cats will meet you halfway, you know, and, and, and in that sense, you know, you're preserving the integrity of, of mankind and, and the world. And, and, and I, that's what I try to do to just want to see more of it, you know, and that, uh, so it's just important that you continue. And I, I mean, I think you were, you know, you give you give your love in many ways, but I just think that being able to keep your heart open and um, recognizing that there are many chapters left, but that, you know, love is the most important thing. I mean, that's what that concert was, you know, George did that for Robbie, you know, he was his student, you know, mm. so it's just like, it, 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 and, and some people say, oh, yeah, man, great love. Yeah, whatever. Okay, whatever, you know, but like, I just know that it can't just be some callous 
you know, sort of litmus test, purity test to prove that you are some, that you are in line with spirit or source. It, it has to do, there has to be a component of love as well. It, it's not just, uh, it's not just reading things out of the Bible. You know, I mean, they, they, that's, I think that was what, what Keltner basically said is he learned that uh, from uh, from George. So there has to be some kind of balance between, like you said, having that discipline, being grateful, but also recognizing that doors are opening for you and you do want to walk through them with your toys and with your machines and with your creativity. And there's nothing wrong with that either. You know, you go in there with humility and grace, right. and gratitude. And I mean, every day, every year now i mean that word love is more important than ever and and vulnerability you know is the place that really i've been living at since i made the choice to step out into this world of what i felt a calling what i feel such a deep calling to create there was nothing really to compare it to i mean there was these things we spoke of the european influences the german stuff and all that but at a certain point you're just you're completely, you know, alone and you're vulnerable and you're just, you know, sitting there praying into the unknown and reaching into the unknown. And then you're pulling out these expressions of the, you know, the deepest in the altus place, you know, the highest and deepest wow. part of your, as your, of yourself. And so, you know, that's, that's what I'm here to do every day. <laughs> you know every night i mean every moment and it's like the the constant challenge is to try and keep stay balanced with with life you know with just the day-to-day -day aspects of life and and not get um totally you know, man to absolutely man absolutely the so, the most mundane things just go by the wayside because you're you're just so deep in the process of creation from so that place. Really, yeah, and I and I still try to like, you know, reel it in a bit and say, you know, just let's go do some mundane things. Let's do some mm -hmm. things around the house or clean this stuff up or whatever, and do the, you know, the the kind of service for the soul to where you can have that sense of gratitude and ref of and reflection and appreciation. Um, because you know, I I came from really. I mean, my family was, my dad was a working class, you know, missile mechanic for General Dynamics in San Diego. I mean, he, you know, he was working on fuselages for missiles and, but he was bucking rivets and he was, you know, a working class guy and worked for 40 years and didn't miss a day's work. And and I got a lot of that from him, that kind of. Um, well, just because he, just because he wasn't in the ivory tower didn't mean he had a brilliant, you know. No, he was, he was, I mean, he had so much feeling and so much emotion and he didn't. Oh, that is sick. Yeah, he, he, was, he was a tough, it, yeah. you know, totally. he didn't express it through his work, but he expressed it in his relationships with his, with his friends. And um, I just would see it in his eyes and, and feel that through his soul. And he, mm -hmm. I got so much of that from him and he would, he would often well up with tears of emotion over things. And, and I just love that, that he gave that to me. And he also gave me the discipline to get up every day and just go for it, you know? And so that's still alive, you know, more than ever in me, so.
Steve Roach, um, I'm going to be uh, coming uh, to the January 3rd concert. I, I was hoping maybe if possible, um, I could, in advance of the, I could come in a little bit early. We could do maybe a video interview to promote the show. Um, if that works for your time frame. we can worry about that later. But I just, I wanted to just say to you um, how grateful I am that our paths have crossed and uh, you know, you're an important anchor. You will be an important anchor for me as I move forward in my own life. So uh, many blessings to you, man. I really, uh, this was a great hang. Oh yeah, Jake. This is just, just been waiting years to have these conversations. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I mean, ambient lounge. I mean, and dude, ambient lounge is on, man. Century room, baby. So that's, uh, you know, on a side note, there, this really worked out great because I had the the no zone like home event in Tucson, and then on Saturday, and then the next day we had two sold out shows with myself and Serena Gabriel and Jeff Granke, another ambient artist based in Tucson who's been around forever. Sure. And and then uh you know the 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 whole situation there was so cool and we and we started talking with the you know Arthur Vent who runs the place and we legendary cat man. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. You know running the Village Vanguard for 10 years and he's now we've got this absolutely completely cool venue there right at the hotel congress so unbelievably hip place i mean i've been there a couple of times it's just anyway i can't yeah. wait but to see your to see you guys is going to be this yeah. isn't this isn't dixieland trad music this is a freaking you know mind melting excursion into the uh intergalactic you know yeah and it's it's really taking that context of deep sacred listening which is what you know, the, the beautiful jazz churches, i.e. venues are, on, you know, on the planet. And then and then bringing in this quality of music, which is, you know, it's a lateral move into deep, deep listening. And it's been a dream of mine since the 90s in Tucson to have such a experience. So we're going to have monthly events there now, the first Tuesday and uh, every month ongoing. Oh, my God. That, well, you know, man, that, I mean, John Coltrane there were cats that saw him get it on stage, start beating his chest. You know, it is about deep listening. It's also about accessing the primordial gut, you know, and there's nothing wrong with having, having discarga during Steve Roach shows, man. I mean, that's really what it's about. I am all for that, man. I'm, yeah, I'm, man. I'm you know, seriously, have to listen, let's just stay in touch. You know, we'll, uh, but I'm, I'm going to hit the road with my kids and we're going to take a road trip to, to Idaho for, about 12 days but when i come on back you know we're right we're right around the corner from the from the uh from the century room so we'll do it up sounds great thank you so much we can't wait to see you there uh, many blessings dude thank you jake take care brother great great day blessings love love